Today is promotion day. The children move physically, but I challenge yourself and myself that we might also think about promoting. I appreciate the choir singing that song. I wanted to tell you um, what's kind of been on my heart recently when I've thought about this responsibility. Several years ago, um, I worked for Vogel Alcove Center for Homeless Children in Dallas, Texas. I was the director of volunteers and community outreach. That um, institution was primarily uh, born out of the Jewish community. And one of my responsibilities as the director of volunteers was to meet with preteens that were getting to, ready to do their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah um, outreach project. The bar mitzvah is the Jewish coming of age for boys, and the bat mitzvah is the same for the girls. And they have a big celebration, but they are responsible for doing something, living outside themselves. So on this particular day, I was meeting with a young boy by the name of Reese, 12 years old, great little kid. And we began working through the steps for his bar mitzvah project. He um, was there with his dad, and he had a passion for sports, and so he said, I want to do a sports project. I want to um, gather up sports equipment. I want to have people donate sports equipment. I want to build a cart, and I want to do a big party for the homeless children. Sounded like a great plan. So, of course, I had a guide sheet for him to follow, and I was talking through that with Reese and his dad. Um, at one point, I gave Reese my business card, and I said, here, Reese, here's my card. It has my phone number on it. Feel free to email me or call me. If you have any questions at all, you're doing a great job. You're off to a good start. As Reese grabbed the business card and was starting to staple it to his paper, he was struggling a little bit. And in just a moment, his dad grabbed the stapler, grabbed the paper, grabbed the business card, and stapled it for him. I didn't say anything, but my face sure told the story. My eyes started talking, and I was just kind of taken back. His dad looked at me, and he goes, I guess I shouldn't have done that, should I? And I said, not unless you're planning to go to college with him and staple all his papers. Well, let me interrupt to tell you who this gentleman was. Reese's dad was the president-elect for the board of directors for Vogel Alcove. It was a more important meeting than perhaps I knew, but it just came out. I said my heart, and um, we finished our meeting. It was pleasant. Reese did have a business card. And um, I saw, as they left, that um, Reese and his dad were having a conversation with Karen Hughes, the president and CEO of Vogel Alcove, as they were leaving. Didn't know what the conversation was about. A little bit later that day, Karen stopped by my office and she said, I saw that you met with Reese and his dad about his project. And I said, yeah. And we talked a little bit about it. And then she said, well, just wanted to let you know, I'm not quite sure what happened, but his dad said that your director's a a director of volunteers is a piece of work. <laughs> well, I was probably a piece of work. I thought about that statement. It hurt my feelings at first, because I thought, Reese is a good kid. He could have stapled his own paper. His dad grabbed the stapler, 
I just said what was on my heart, wasn't trying to offend anybody. But the more I thought about it, it really made me think. My disappointment started to turn to, well, I am a piece of work. I am unfinished, I'm in process, I'm messy, I'm incomplete. And soon I realized that I had to agree with him. Yes, I am a piece of work, something like that. I'm the workmanship of Jesus Christ, and so are you, and so is Reese's dad, and so is my boss, and we're all in process. Scripture reminds us in Philippians, I am convinced and confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, in me, will continue to perfect it and complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That conversation has run through my mind many, many times. And I thought about it again as I started thinking about the story of the potter and the clay. Because it's an incredible analogy that's given to us in the Bible that helps us know how God works with us in our lives. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. And all of us are a work in your hand. Isaiah 64, 8. Yes, we're all a piece of work. Well, when we think about it, and as I thought about the process, God is three things. He's the maker, he's the molder, and he's the master. He's the maker. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being from Genesis. But oh, how I love Psalm 139. I don't know if you do, but it's a favorite place in God's word for me. For you created my inmost being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I, am, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, Psalm 139. So why do we struggle? Why do we struggle believing what God says about us and we think more about what the world says about us or the comments that come our way? I have struggled with body image my whole life. There's me. That was my seventh birthday. All I remember about that picture is how tight the dress was <laughs> and how short the bangs were. <laughs> I remember that dress was so tight. I was barrel-chested, and I could barely breathe in that dress. And from that point on, I have struggled with body image. I don't know about you. Most of us do, we just don't like to talk about it. At the age of 14, my dad took me to the doctor and had them give me amphetamines so that I could lose weight. He always talked to me about my body and how I needed to slim down. His nickname for me was Sweet Tooth. 
And then, throughout the years, I've struggled with body image. And last year, I was diagnosed with lipedema. Lipedema is a fat disease that's underneath the skin of my legs. It's a misunderstood disease. It's diagnosed and treated readily in Europe, but not so much in the United States. It can be disfiguring and painful. I'm grateful I'm not in pain. But it can't be eliminated by diet or exercise. It can be corrected by surgery. And my doctor told me that they would be happy to help me with it. It would cost $40,000 and it wasn't covered by insurance. But we all have our stuff. That's mine. But when I was diagnosed with lipedema, and even before that, as I watched my legs not be what I wanted, even though, no matter what I did, I became a leg watcher. And I would look at people's legs. And I would have conversations with God about their legs. So I was in the, in the airport not too long ago, and I noticed a girl. I was getting something to drink. Her legs were about here on me. She was tall and slender and gorgeous, and she didn't have much fat on her body at all. And I had a parent trap moment. You know, when Hallie sees Meredith in the lobby and stares at her, and Meredith stares back at her and questions, what are you staring at? And Haley says, oh, nothing, nothing. You're just really pretty. That's all. That's all. Of course, I didn't say those words, but I was thinking it. And then I had a conversation with God. God, when you created me, was there a contest where it was draw the straws and I got the short one? I was arguing with my maker. We all do it at times because we're not pleased with our hair, our eyes, our nose, our complexion, our hips, our stomach, our pear shape, our apple shape, etc. We complain about our parts. Romans 9.20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? I was guilty. And I work on it all the time. But I was reading recently one of Christine Kane's books, and she's wonderful. She's an Australian-born lover of Jesus, an adopted daughter, an author, and an international speaker. And she said these words, God knew me and loved me before I was even me. He loved me despite any trouble I could find myself in or challenges I face. If I mess up or melt down, he still loves me. He knows me better than I know myself and loves me so much that he will always have my back. He goes before me through the unknown. I am loved by God, the maker of the universe, from the dust, the maker of me. No matter who you are, what you look like, what your path looks like, or what's running through your head right now, you are fearfully and wonderfully made and loved by God. As part of preparing for this, one of the things that I realized is I didn't know all that much about clay and clay building. In college, I took a clay course, but I didn't remember all that much, and I remember my brothers making fun of my end products. That's what I remembered the most. 
So I decided to go to Oil and Clay Studio down the street, and there was a young lady, delightful, her name's Louisa. She's one of the young co-owners of this place. And we began talking. I made an appointment with her and said, can you teach me about clay, the properties? Can you teach me about what happens in this process? I was overwhelmed by the spiritual applications, the analogies, and the lessons that I needed to soak in. First of all, we talked about water. Water is primary in the clay process. Water and clay are important, very important to each other. We are clay. Did you know that 55 to 65% of our body is water? What an application. Just like our physical bodies need water in order to be able to live and survive in the world, in the same way our souls need spiritual water, God's word flowing through us in order to feed us on the inside in our inner man. I don't know about you, but there are days when I'm low and I get up and read God's word and then I step into the shower and I say, God, would you wash over me with your word like this water? The word water is used throughout Scripture in so many different ways, but just a few. It's a cleansing agent, which explains why Paul, what Paul meant when he was, wrote about Jesus cleansing the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing water of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Water is referred to as salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Water, one of my favorites, is a longing for God. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The potter adds enough water in order to make this clay soft and pliable so that he can actually do something with it. If he doesn't add water, the clay gets hard, rigid, and is not much use. But even dry clay, like the crazy pieces of clay we just saw a few minutes ago, if you add water to that, that was a bucket at the studio. I said, what do you do with all that? She said, oh, I can add water to it and rework it so that it is moldable once again. When we are dry and not very pliable, I don't know about you, but I need to sign up for that group because there's times when I'm not very teachable. And God spiritually will add water to my clay. There's a process that we don't like to talk too much about, and it's called wedging. It's this. It's when the potter grabs the clay and beats it and pushes it and stretches it and puts pressure on it. And that's the stuff in our life. I loved what Louisa said when I was talking to her. She said, wedging is the way the potter wakes up the clay. <laughs> Have you been wakened up lately? <laughs> God wakes me up with all kinds of crazy stuff. And I look at it as a problem, but he's waking me up. It's a tough and a rough process of removing the imperfections, the air bubbles, 
We go through wedging to become more pliable and moldable, to make clay one body. Before the clay can be put on the wheel or shaped by hand, it must properly be prepared. It has to be supple enough to adapt to change, yet firm enough to not collapse under pressure. Did you know that? He's working in your life and mine so that we don't collapse under pressure. God still uses the life as our classroom, guiding us in his truths. Every event, hardship, failure, sin, success is part of our personalized life lesson, our lesson plan. Learning the lesson will require being able to see the situation through God's eyes. His ways are not ours. His thoughts aren't ours. The wedging words are hard for us. Broken, molded, refined, shaped, filled. It's the hard stuff. It's the divorce. It's the death of a child. It's the financial issues. It's the sickness. It's the loss of a job. And the list goes on. God is wedging our clay. We are here to endure what God, we call hardship, he calls discipline. That's what he does with us. God's treating you as a child, one of his. For what children are not disciplined by their father, Hebrews 12, 7 says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those that he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Wedging. This is the coolest thing ever. You get a piece of this in your hands and you recognize that God is doing this with you all the time. And me too. The wheel. In order to put this on a wheel, we have to be wedged first. But I loved what she said about the wheel. She said, you can use all of these tools right here, but the best tools are the hands on that wheel. They take this lump of clay and they center it on the wheel. It's in the middle. And that's the first step is to get it in the center. To be properly centered in Jesus is that you have to be under a complete and full surrender of you and your entire life with him where he is now in full control of your life. If we don't let him put us in the center of the wheel, when that he starts working with us, we go to pieces. It doesn't work out. I loved this. Louisa said, when the potter's working with the wheel, he never takes his eyes off the clay. He never takes his hands off the clay. Think about it. That's you. That's me. Right now. He has his hands all over you. He has his eyes completely on us. He's molding and shaping our clay. God has to apply some serious pressure from, with us from time to time in order to get us to change and become the kind of person that he wants us to become. The potter's hands are working on both the inside 
and the outside of the clay to mold and shape and transform the inside and the outside. His hands are literally making and forming all of this out of this original shapeless lump of clay. In the same way, God's own hands literally go down deep into the middle of our souls and spirits where the inner sanction work is actually done to mold and transform us into the saints that he wants us to become. I love a paraphrase from Romans 12 too. Mold and shape me until I think like you. That is my prayer. Well, God is the master. He's the one that has the design. He already knows what he wants to do with you. He knows all about you, that clay, and it's all about the journey. So during my visit with Louisa, we talked more about the process, and I loved because it was how the Lord works with us. But she said, of all the processes that the clay goes through, the firing process is the most important. It's probably not what I wanted to hear. It is this process of fire and heat that is the test of survival. Can the peace withstand the heat? God does that with us. I took, um, I said to her, do you have a piece of pottery that I can take with me? And she said, yeah, actually I do. I have one that nobody's ever going to buy. And I love those things. <laughs> so I said, well, there has to be a story. And she told me the story, and I said, I'll buy this piece. The story was that she made this, and she had two vases, and they were both separate. And they were each on this stilt. And of course, when you close the kiln and get ready to fire it, once you close it, you don't know what's going to happen. Some of the pieces blow apart, some fall apart, some are more beautiful than you could ever imagine. So when she opened up the kiln, the stilt from this vase had broken. And this vase had fallen into this one. And she said, this piece has been sitting in our studio for a long time. I said, I am your buyer. I said, you know why? Because I've had a lot of stuff run into my life. I got a laundry list of things, and it's been painful. But the coolest thing ever is it doesn't change what God's going to do in your life. It doesn't change my purpose. It just makes it look a little bit different and maybe a little more creative. So I choose this vase. I think it looks pretty good with flowers. What do you think? Because it has a purpose and it's pretty just because it's different. But that was her story about that. One of the verses we love to quote a lot is Jeremiah 29, 11. It makes us feel better. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. But what we don't realize, that's not a Santa Claus verse. It's not 
God's going to give me whatever I want kind of verse. We think about it sometimes like that. But the focus in that verse is on God. It's not on us. You can trust me because I made you and I love you and I'm molding you. No matter what your situation, God has plans for your welfare. He's God. He's good. He's a good God. He's Father. He is the Master. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth. Think about that. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's the big picture verse. Well, I want to close by telling you a story about a piece of clay named John. This book changed my thinking. John Kralik, 53, was an attorney. Found his life at a terrible, frightening low as his small law firm was failing. He was struggling through a divorce. He didn't have much relationship with his two older kids, and he hardly ever saw his youngest child. His finances were tanked. He was living in a tiny apartment that was freezing in the winter, and it was an oven in the summer, and many times he would sleep on a mattress, an air mattress, in front of a fan. It seemed like his plans and his dreams and law school and everything were slipping away. But on a New Year's Day, John decided to take a hike outside. He needed to clear his head. He needed fresh air. So we went to Echo Mountain Trail outside of Pasadena, California. And somewhere along this three-mile hike, he was thinking, not paying a lot of attention, and got a little bit off path. He slipped and stumbled into some rough stuff. The day was getting away, and he needed to get home before it was dark. And while he was walking, he heard, until you learn to be grateful for the things you have, you will not receive the things you want. He's thinking, what's that? He was confused at what he'd heard because he was tired and frustrated, and he sat down for a minute. And then he heard the words again. You will learn to be grateful, until you learn to be grateful for the things that you have, you won't receive the things that you want. It got his attention enough to get him on his feet and begin trying to find his way. And he did start heading downward and did come to a piece of the trail he recognized and finally down the mountain. He sat at the base of the mountain and thought about what he'd heard, being grateful. He thought, well, I don't have anything to be grateful for. Everything in my life's a wreck. And then he thought that several years ago when his practice was doing well, an associate of his had bought some nice stationery and envelopes for handwritten personal notes for his business relationships. He'd been packing up, and he'd seen those, and he said, I don't know what I'm going to do with these. I don't have anybody that wants much of anything from me. He soon would be losing his office and so we would save this useless stationery and envelopes. What was he going to do with it? And then he came up with an idea. He said, I'm, if I'm supposed to be grateful, I'm not. And I need to figure this out. So he decided to find one person each day, even if it was the bag 
boy at the grocery store. And one person every day he was going to write a thank you note to. By the end of the year, he will have used up all the stationery and written 365 thank you notes. He had nothing to lose. He already had the stationery. He stood up and he began his long walk home, and he wasn't sure what he had to be thankful for, but he was going with the plan. So he began writing thank you notes for the little things, someone's kind word, a nice gesture from a neighbor, from a child, his children. He began paying attention to the world around him and their gestures. He continued the thank you writing exercise as if, and then it became more than an exercise. It was more like the glad game in Pollyanna. Do you remember that old movie? She plays the glad game. Her dad taught her. It was the game of finding something to be glad for and thankful for, even when the situation was dire. So John was choosing to find gratitude in the daily happenings of life. Thank you notes became part of his life. Now he was looking for things to be thankful for. His life began to change. Yep, some of his circumstances began to change. His world was opening up to new possibilities. His focus changed, his heart changed a bit from lifting his eyes off of himself and learning to be more grateful. John's a piece of work. So are you. So am I. We're a piece of work. But we can go from a place of trusting God because God's the potter. We're his clay. We're his workmanship of his hands. Perhaps his word to us today is this. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Stop worrying. You're just a lump of clay. You can't change your circumstances. Stop worrying. Pray. Be thankful. And know that God has you. He's using all the water, the slip, everything that he has to use to mold and fashion your life from the inside and the out. He just wants us to be pliable and willing to be molded. And the peace which passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. Before I pray, Today, at the doors, there will be students there. There are two baskets. One basket has a card in it with an envelope. It's a picture of the potter and the clay. Anybody that is willing to write anything, a child, a teenager, a college student, an adult, take a card. I want you to write a card to somebody that has helped you in your life, helped you with your clay, somebody that you can be grateful for, say thank you to. It's a way to start. You only have 364 more days after that. Also, there's a basket of modeling clay. I want the kids to take the modeling clay, and I want them to go to school knowing that God is molding their clay. He's going to use teachers and parents and, and all kinds of people, Sunday school teachers, and to mold and fashion, they're gonna, God is going to use people to mess with your clay. Parents, 
Give God the opportunity to use other people in your kid's life to mess with their clay. Don't hold your, their clay like this. Hold their clay like this. There's people that want to make an impression. Our preschoolers are getting Play-Doh today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are today for your word that reminds us that we're the clay. You're the potter, God. You have us in your hand. Help us this day to be anxious for nothing because you have us. But with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, a grateful heart that we can bring our requests to you, God, and know that you hold them dear. And the peace that passes understanding that is beyond us will guard our hearts and our minds in you. Thank you for loving us, molding us, and making us. Thank you for being the potter. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.